I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. On our last Sunday in uh, the Lord's Prayer, disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. He said, pray then like this. And, and he gave us the Lord's Prayer. This is meant to be a prayer not just repeated um, out loud or memorized, but it's a model for how we're to pray. And we're the last week this week in our series. Um, last week, we looked at the part of the prayer where Jesus was teaching us to ask for forgiveness, taught us to pray, Lord, forgive me my debts, my sins, to the extent that I forgive other people's sins against me. Now, I want you to hear this. This final part of the prayer is not asking for forgiveness for past sins, but it's a prayer that's asking for protection from future sins. So it's not a prayer asking for forgiveness of past sins, but it's a prayer of protection that you're praying against future sins and temptations that might come into your life. And so let's read this together, Matthew 6.13. And Jesus finishes the prayer and he says this, he says, we pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus says, pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Now, what I'm gonna do today with the rest of my time is I'm gonna answer two basic questions, all right? First of all, we're gonna look at what does it mean for us to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. What does that mean? That's the first question. Second question I'm gonna answer is this, is why is Jesus asking us to pray this? Why does he want us to pray this? And the why, church, is critical. The why is critical. Why we pray this is critical because what we're about to see is that you and I praying this prayer, actually praying it, is a critical part, uh, a critical component of our pursuit of holiness in our lives. Now I wanna take a minute and I wanna talk about this idea of holiness. You may have heard the definition of the word holy or holiness before, but I wanna give you one definition of it. The word holy means to be pure, set apart, or consecrated for the Lord. And so the idea of being holy is that you are set apart for a singular purpose, which is the Lord. Now, there's two things today I want you to understand about this idea of holiness, and here's the first one. Holiness is the calling of every believer. Y'all with me? Holiness is the calling of every believer. It's actually a command. Leviticus 11.45, this is the Lord speaking. He says, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, right? And so God says, look, I want you to understand something. I brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. We're gonna talk about that in a second. You were in slavery. God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, here's the deal. Here's what I want from you in light of what I've done in your life. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be consecrated. I want you to be pure. And the ultimate reason I want you to be holy, God says, because I'm holy. I am holy, okay? So holiness is the calling on the life of every believer. But there's something else I want you to see about holiness, and it's this. 
Holiness is the consequence of every believer. Now, let me explain what I mean by that because I was trying to think of a word that began with C, calling, and so I came up with consequence. But here's what I mean by that. Holiness is not just a calling on the life of the child of God, but holiness is the inevitable result in the life of a child of God. Here's what I mean by that. Philippians 1.6. Paul says, for I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Sagemont, who began the good work in you? It's the Lord. Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. And that is amazing news. It's also challenging news that he who began the work of salvation in you, that he, the one that made you holy, he is going to be in the process of making you holy for the rest of your life until you see Jesus. And so if you're truly saved here today, there ought to be an up and to the right trajectory of holiness in your life. As a believer, you ought to be able to look back on your life and see that there are many areas of your life that you are holier today than you were before because the promise of scripture is that he who began the good work in you is gonna be faithful to complete it. And what I'm realizing as I've studied this is that this prayer that we're looking at today is a critical piece of the puzzle in your pursuit of holiness in our lives, okay? So let's begin, let's begin by looking at what specifically is Jesus asking us to pray? What does this mean? What's he asking us to pray through verse six or chapter six, verse 13? So let's read it. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's he teaching us to pray? Well, I wanna talk for a second about this idea of temptation. What is temptation? Why is Jesus saying, God, don't lead me into temptation? Well, I'll talk about what that means in a second, but I wanna take a minute and understand what Jesus is saying when he says temptation. Here's another definition for you. And this is a very simple definition, but a temptation is a desire to do something wrong or unwise. So temptation is when you have a desire to do something that's wrong, sinful, are unwise. Okay, now here's what I want you to hear. Everybody tune in to me here for a second. I just want to show you through this little section of the sermon is that there is a difference between temptation and sin. There's a difference. There's a separation between temptation and sin. Let me uh, give you an example. Let's talk for a second about the sin of lust. Jesus says, do not look at a woman with lust. So the sin itself is lust. Now, men, if you're, you know, you're out doing your thing and you see a woman jogging by and you realize that she is attractive, like you look at her, you see her, you realize she's attractive. And in that moment, you have a desire to keep looking at her. You have a desire to keep looking at her. That is a moment of temptation. Okay, you have a desire to do something that's wrong or unwise. But here's the thing you need to understand. You haven't yet sinned. Just because you have a desire to look at an attractive woman, that doesn't mean you've sinned. That means that you're a male and that God wired you that way. But it's what you do in that moment that determines whether that temptation moves into sin or not. 
okay? It's what you do in that moment of temptation that determines whether it crosses over into sin, right? And so if you see an attractive woman and it hits you, I have a desire to look again, but you don't. You divert your eyes. You walk away, you keep on going. You honor the Lord in that moment. You've been tempted, but you have not sinned. If you have that desire and you continue to look, you allow your eyes to dwell on her body. You um, let your mind go to places that you shouldn't. That's when you've crossed the line between temptation and sin. And there's a big difference between the two. The scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he never crossed the line into sin. Okay, so with that in mind, Let's look at the text again. Look at what Jesus is teaching us to pray here, Matthew 6, 13. Jesus says to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Okay, now check this out. At first glance, it looks like Jesus is saying that God is the one who tempts us. At first glance, it looks like God is the one who tempts us and we're praying, hey God, please don't uh, bring temptation into my life, but that cannot be what it's saying because the scripture is explicitly clear that God never tempts us. God himself never places a temptation into our lives. Let me show you that, James 1.13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Pretty clear? He himself tempts no one. So the scripture clearly tells us that when you and I are being tempted to sin, that is not coming from God. God's not the one who is doing that. And so when you and I enter into those moments of temptation, who or what is it that is tempting us? Well, the scripture says there's three sources of your temptation and my temptation, okay? Three places that that temptation is coming from. Number one, first is Satan, okay? We know that biblically. The first source of our temptation is Satan. In Matthew 4, 1, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, okay? Pretty straightforward. That's one of, literally one of Satan's names is the tempter. And so we know at times that when temptation comes into our life, it could be straight from Satan himself. Now, the second source of our temptation are Satan's demonic forces, all right? Number two, um, Ephesians 6, 12 says this, Paul says, for we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul is saying, look, we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood here, but there are spiritual forces that are coming against us. And Paul's talking about Satan, but also his demonic forces, all right? So I told you there were three. Don't shout it out, but what's the third one? You, that's right. Glad you shouted it out. It's you and it's me. That's the third source of our temptation is our flesh. Let me read this to you, James 1.14. This is right after he says, don't think when you're being tempted, you're being tempted by God. And then he tells us where the temptation's coming from, James 1.14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, at your salvation, and I want you to hear this, this is important. 
At your salvation, talked about positional forgiveness last week. At your salvation, you're made positionally righteous. You are positionally made completely holy. You're justified. You're not guilty. And so in one sense, you're positionally holy. But what do we still do? We still go out and sin. Why do we sin? Because even though we're positionally holy, we're still made of flesh. And our flesh has all these desires. Our sinful flesh has all these desires that's contrary to God's desires. And so that's the third source of our temptation is just our own flesh. That girl that came jogging by that you had a desire to look at, that wasn't Satan sending that girl in your life. That's just your nasty flesh wanting to do that. Okay? So whenever you're tempted to sin, Scripture tells us, that the source of that temptation, again, it's not God, but it's either Satan, it's his demons, or your own flesh. Now, why does Jesus teach us to pray then, God, lead us not into temptation? Now, I want you to listen very carefully because I need you to understand this. Don't miss this. When you're praying or when you pray, God, lead me not into temptation, that's a prayer where you're essentially asking God to lead you away from temptation. That's what it means. When you pray, lead me not into temptation, it's not saying God's the one that's tempting you, but it's a prayer where you're asking God to protect you and to prevent you from ever being tempted in the first place, okay? It's a prayer of protection against the temptations of Satan, his demons, and your flesh. All right, one way to think about this prayer, it's kind of like a prayer of preventative medicine, if you wanna think about it that way. Um, I'm not gonna use COVID as an illustration because that's, uh, that's a hot topic right now. So we'll use the flu, right? There's two ways you can approach dealing with getting the flu, right? One way is, uh, is that you don't worry about the flu until after you get the flu. And then after you get the flu, what do you do? You go to the doctor. And if you go to the doctor, you get some Tamiflu and you rest and hopefully you get better. But the problem of that, with that is that you had to go through getting the flu, right? And there's another way you can approach getting the flu, and that's when you try not to get the flu in the first place. You eat your vegetables. You eat your fruit. Um, you exercise. You wash your hands. Maybe you get a flu shot. With the idea being that you get your immune system strengthened to the place that when the flu virus comes at you, it can defend against it and you never have to go through getting it in the first place. That's what this prayer is. Lead me not into temptation. It's not saying God's the one that leads you, but it's a prayer where you're saying, God, would you lead me uh, away from even being tempted? God, would you protect me and prevent me from ever being tempted to sin in the first place? Okay, so it's a prayer of preventative medicine. Now let's look at the next thing. That he teaches us to pray. Matthew 6, 13. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, he says, God, um, he tells us to pray, Father, would you, would you prevent me and would you protect me from being tempted in the first place? But then he says to pray, but would you deliver us? Would you deliver me from evil? All right, and the key word there is deliver. The key word is deliver. What are you asking God for when you're asking him to deliver you from evil? 
okay? Well, I want you to, um, if, don't turn there, just listen. I wanna read it to you. In Exodus 6, 6, when God, God was speaking to Moses about him freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and I want you to listen to how he uses the word deliver in Exodus 6, 6. God's speaking to Moses and he says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Everybody look at me. God looked at the Israelites They'd been crying out for help, God deliver us, or they'd been crying out about slavery. And God looked at the Israelites and he realized that they were helpless to deliver themselves out of slavery in Egypt. And so God looked at them and says, Moses, here's what I'm gonna do. You go tell the people that I'm gonna deliver them. I'm gonna put them in my hands and in my power, I'm gonna deliver you out of slavery in Egypt. And that is exactly what he did. He put them in his hands and he delivered them. He sent plagues to the Egyptians to the point where Pharaoh cried uncle and said, y'all get out of here. I don't want you anymore. And so the Israelites took off. Pharaoh changed his mind. And then right where they got to the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea so his people could walk right through it to the other side. And Pharaoh, as he's chasing after him, his army's chasing after him, he closed the Red Sea, destroyed their enemies. When he told them, I'm going to deliver you out of slavery, what God is saying to them is, I'm going to do the work for you. You can't do it in your power, so I'm gonna do it in my power power. God was the one that delivered them out of slavery. And so look one more time at what Jesus is praying. Matthew 6, 13 says to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. So when you pray, God, lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. Here's what you're praying. Number one, you're praying, God, would you protect me from being Tempted in the first place, but when temptation comes, Lord, would you put me in your hands and would you deliver me in your power from any evil that's coming my way? Okay, so that's what it means. Now, let's answer the question of why. Why should we pray that? God, would you keep me from being tempted in the first place? But when evil does come into my life, would you put me in your hands and would you do the work and would you deliver me out of that evil that's coming in my life? Why do we pray that? And here's the answer. Because you and I don't have the power in and of ourselves to defeat evil. You and I, in our power, do not have the ability to win the battle against sin and temptation. And a great example of that is in uh, Mark 9.29. Mark 9.29. It was a story of um, this boy who was demon-possessed. And the father of the boy brought uh, this demon-possessed boy to the disciples, and he asked them to cast out the demons. And the disciples tried to do it, but they could not cast the demon out. And so Jesus comes walking up, sees the demon-possessed boy, boom, cast the demon out. And the disciples are kind of standing behind Jesus going, yeah, take that demon, right? And then they pull, they pull Jesus aside and they said, Jesus, how'd you do that? Like we tried, we couldn't do it. So, so how'd you do that? So let's read this, Mark 9, 28. 
And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Watch what Jesus said in 929. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's a really simple answer, but I want you to focus on those last four words. Nothing profound about that at all. But Jesus says there is a kind of evil that you and I are gonna face. And the only way we're ever gonna defeat it is through prayer. Jesus said there's an evil out there and you can try in your power all day long, but it's not gonna work. If you wanna defeat it, if you wanna have victory over it, there is one way and one way alone that you can have victory over that and that is prayer. And I want everybody to hear this. Jesus is saying again, there's a kind of evil out there that you're gonna face and the only way that you will defeat it and have victory over it is if you have access to the one that is more powerful than that evil. And the way that you have access to the one that is more powerful than that evil is when you pray. Pretty simple, huh? But we don't do it, do we? Right? And I think the, I think the reason that many of us in the room might be getting our tails kicked when it comes to temptation and sin is because we're trying to defeat the attacks of Satan and the desires of our flesh in our own power. You're trying to defeat the attacks of Satan and the desires, the evil desires of our flesh through discipline um, and safeguards and willpower and accountability. And look, all those things are awesome and they're good and they're needed, but by themselves, apart from the power of God, they will never work. There was a... uh, it was a, a heretical theologian back in the fifth century named Javovian. That's a cool name, isn't it? Javovian. And he used to teach, he was heretical, he used to teach people that once you got baptized, Satan could never tempt you again. Everybody laughs, right? Wait. Once you got baptized, once you got into the water, you could never be tempted in a significant way again. And there was a good theologian at the same time named Jerome. And Jerome wrote him a letter, and the letter simply said this, baptism does not drown the devil, right? (laughs) It's true. Just because you got saved and you got baptized, that does not mean that Satan's gonna stop tempting you. And guess what, church? He's right. And guess what, church? Satan is stronger than you. Have y'all figured that out yet? Satan's stronger than you. He's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. And so if you try to overcome temptation, the temptations of Satan and his demons, your flesh and your power, more often than not, he's gonna win. Okay, but I want you to watch what 1 John 4, 4 says. I love this verse. 1 John 4, 4. John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. And so John is reminding us, he's telling us that yes, Satan and his demonic forces, they are more powerful than you, but they are not more powerful than the one that lives in you, which is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And so what Jesus is teaching us through the Lord's prayer is that what gives you the access 
to the power that is greater than Satan is when you come to the Lord and you pray. God, would you please not ever let me be tempted in the first place, but when it comes, would you be the one in your power? Would you deliver me away from that evil? Okay, so the answer to the question of why Jesus asking us to pray this, number one, praying, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, it actually, there's something going on there that that prayer gives us access to the power of God, which is greater than the enemy. But here's another reason why Jesus says we should pray this prayer. Number two, praying, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, moves the heart of our heavenly father to action. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that when we pray that, when we cry out to our heavenly father, lead me not into temptation, God, but deliver me from evil, I'm convinced that prayer moves the heart of God to action in our lives, okay? And I'll tell you why. Y'all remember the very first thing Jesus taught us to pray? What was it? Somebody tell me. Our father, right? Our father. He does that intentionally. It's, it's a... It's a phrase that, that colors every other part of the prayer. When we pray, we're praying not just to this great God and King, but we're praying to our Father. We're praying to our Daddy. And so right out of the blocks, Jesus reminds us of that. You need to remember you're praying to your heavenly Father, and there's a reason that he told us to pray that first, because we too often forget that. That what moves the heart of a father to action, maybe, maybe more than any other thing is when they hear their children's cry for help. Got any dads in here? Raise your hand. When you hear your children crying for help, and I'm not talking about some like, hey, you know, I'm messing with my sister kind of thing, but like when they're actually in trouble, do you, have, do you even have to think about it? You just, you just move in action. I could tell you um, lots of stories right here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you one. I'm the same way, a um, little background in the story. I, I grew up in a family of teachers. The, um, I did the math during uh, my preparation this week and there were seven members of my immediate family that were teachers or, or principals or um, counselors or whatever. They worked in the school system. And so I grew up at all of our family gatherings hearing stories about these crazy parents, right? that their kids would be doing something really, really bad and the kid was totally in fault, but the parents took the side of the child every single time. And so when my kids were growing up, if there was a, a situation between them and a teacher to a fault, my natural inclination was to take the side of the teacher because that's just how I was raised. My kid would come home and say, dad, my teacher was so mean to me. And I'd look at them and say, good, you're probably being an idiot. What'd you do, right? To a fault, that's what I did. But there was a few years ago um, when my son, my oldest son was a senior at his school in Austin. And um, it was his senior year and the headmaster, that's what they called him, which is a dumb thing now that I think about it to call a principal a headmaster. Anyway, especially at a Christian school, it seemed like the headmaster would be Jesus. Anyway, all right, all right. So anyway, the headmaster did something to my son that I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but it, it was just wrong. It was dead wrong with me, a person in this room that would have any question, that was over the line. And I was sitting in my office, my son's a senior, he's a great kid, 
I'm sitting in my office, one o'clock in the afternoon, it's my son calling. Now he never calls me, and so I'm like, something's wrong. And so I answer the phone, and when I answered the phone, his voice was trembling. And so I knew something was wrong. I'm like, buddy, are you okay? And uh, he started to talk, and you could tell that he was fighting back tears. And I'll never forget these words that came out of his mouth. He, he told me what happened, and he said, Dad, I need your help. I need your help. He was not one to typically ask for help. And so with a trembling voice, when I heard his voice trembling, when I heard him fighting back tears, when I heard what happened, and when I heard those words, I need, Dad, I need your help. My appointments that afternoon no longer mattered. Y'all with me? I could have had, I'm telling you, I could have had a meeting with Billy Graham and I would have shut it down. And in that moment, I dropped everything in the world that I had and I got involved. Dr. Matt Carter got involved. And by the end of the afternoon, Mr. Headmaster was apologizing to him and was also apologizing to my wife and to me and everybody else. It was across the line. Listen, when our children, when my child was in genuine need and he cried out for help in a genuine place, in that moment, I would have moved heaven and earth to help him. And I think we forget that about our heavenly father. I think we forget it. I think we forget what Paul says in Romans 8, 14, where he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. And then watch what he said in verse 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Okay, now, let's stop right there. Paul's saying, you have a spirit inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It gives you access to the power of God because it's in you. And because of that, you don't need to be afraid. You, you have a spirit inside of you that shouldn't ever get you to a place where you are afraid. You shouldn't fall back into fear. And then he tells us why we shouldn't fall back into fear. He says, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy. And so the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Father adopted you into his family as, you, as his son or as his daughter. And so when you're in trouble, when you're struggling, when you're facing temptation and sin, you don't have to just cry out, oh, great God and King, would you please come help me? That would be amazing enough if we could do that. But what Paul's saying is that when we face temptation and sin, we can cry out, Daddy, Daddy. I need your help, I need your help. And I'm convinced that that absolutely moves the heart of God. And so this prayer, Father, lead me not into temptation, but you're praying, God, I need you to deliver me. I need your help to deliver me from this sin. It gives us access to the power of God. It moves the heart of God to come and deliver us. And yet the reality is, too many of us are not praying this prayer, are we? We're not praying it. And because of that, there are too many of us that are fighting sin on a daily basis in our own power. 
And we were never meant to do that. We were never meant to do that. I told you at the beginning of this message, it would be like you uh, getting picked on and, um, and you having Dwayne the Rock Johnson as your dad, but you don't go to him. It'd be like you having cancer and having the greatest um, you know, cancer surgeon in the world as your dad and you not going to him. And so it's entirely possible that some of you in the room today are experiencing defeat in your battle against temptation and sin for one reason and one reason alone, and that's prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Jesus said, there's a kind of evil you're gonna face and the only way it's coming out is through prayer. You're not getting on your knees regularly and crying out, Heavenly Father, Daddy, I need your help. When I first learned this years ago, I actually started doing it. I actually started doing it. When I, I regularly began to pray in my prayer time, this prayer, Father, would you please just prevent me from even getting to this place where I'm tempted and when the temptation comes, God, would, would you deliver me? Would you put me in your hands and would you deliver me from this evil? And there have been things in my life and this is a true story. There have been things in my life that I struggled with for an extended period of time that when I began to pray, when I cried out for God, it was that simple. And he all of a sudden just gave me the power and I immediately began to have victory over that temptation and sin in my life. But it, he, he wanted me to ask him for it. But there's other times in my life where I have cried out to God. I have sin in my life, I have temptation in my life. I have cried out to my Father, Lord, I need your help. I need you to deliver me from this evil. And there've been times when he hasn't done it. And so that brings us to the final question today before we take the Lord's Supper. What if you're struggling with temptations and sin and you are praying, but the Lord's not giving victory to you over that sin? It happens. What if, you're, what if you're asking the Lord in a sincere way, God, would you lead me not temptation, but would you deliver me from evil? But he's not doing it. And you keep falling into that same sin. What's going on there? Y'all know what I'm talking about? It happens. Um, here's the question. If God has the power to deliver us from evil and temptation and sin, which he does, why does he not always do it? Okay, because I've heard... Heard, heard a hundred stories, maybe, maybe hundreds of stories in my life of people that had a sin in their life and then they realized it was a sin, they asked God, petitioned God, and boom, God heals them from it in that moment. I heard a story this week. A guy that struggled with alcoholism his entire life, he was walking into the liquor store, he had heard a sermon recently about this thing, leave me non-temptation, but deliver me from evil. He said it was mad, it was like the Lord was speaking to him. He heard that verse in his mind. He stopped in his tracks, he turned around, he never let alcohol touch his lips again to this day. There are gonna be times in your life where you pray, you cry out to God and boom, he heals you. But I could also tell you, dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of people that love God and are crying out to him and for whatever reason he doesn't just immediately remove that temptation or even that sin what is going on there if he has the power why does he not always do it well, I want to give you an illustration kind of land the plane today help get our minds around this I was um when I was back in Austin my I had three children two older ones were driving younger one Sammy wasn't driving yet and the two older kids had cars, which was incredibly expensive, I did not realize at the time. Um, but they, 
they both had cars and um, I would typically get home after them because they came home after practice. I'd usually come home after them. And, and as I got home after them and I saw their two cars in the driveway or parked out in front, I began to notice something. I began to notice that there was, uh, there'd be trash in my yard. And at first I thought, well, maybe it was just trash blowing in from the neighbor, but it kept going. I'd, I'd, I'd pull up again the next day and there'd be little pieces of paper and there'd be a Starbucks cup and, and there'd be like a, a spoon from a Starbucks cup and, and there'd be water bottles. And so what did I do? I went and I picked up the trash. But then the next morning or next day I'd come home, there'd be trash in my yard again. And it hit me that the trash was falling out of their cars. It was falling out of their cars because they're filthy people. They did not clean their cars. And so they would open the door and trash would fall out and they'd just go, okay, that'll pick that up. And, I, and, and, and they'd walk into the house. Has anybody ever experienced that in their life? Yes, yes, what is that? Filthy people. And, I, and I'm, I'm using this for the sake of an illustration, but you got the sense you got the sense that had I not gone and picked up the trash for them, that within a year or so, there would have been a big pile of trash in the middle of my front yard, right? And it'd be nasty and it would smell bad, smell like rotten cafe lattes, okay? What if my children came up to me one day a year later with a big pile of trash in the yard and said, Daddy, please help us pick up the trash. Right? We need your help to pick up the trash. Well, as a father, I got two choices in that moment, right? Y'all with me? Y'all see where I'm going with this? I could go spend the money and get a, a, a tractor, right? Call Matt Kirk. Matt Kirk rents a tractor and brings it to my house, which is what would happen, wouldn't it, Matt? Yes, and then you would come over to the house and we could scoop up the trash in one fell swoop because I love my kids. I just might do that but then that would be pretty easy on them. And they might not learn the lesson very well. And then the next time they drive up, their filthy cars, they would open the door and the trash just might spill out again. They would talk about how great dad was, but the trash might spill out. There's another option. I could get rid of their trash in a different way when they cried out for help, I could say, all right, I'm gonna help you, but we're gonna do something first. And I walk out with them together and I say, all right, I want you to pick up the trash and I want you to pick it up piece by piece and you throw it away and I'm gonna help you, but we're gonna do it the slow way, right? Together. Let me ask you a question. Which one of those two scenarios is likely to produce in the heart of my children a hatred for trash. Which one of those two scenarios is more likely to get my children in a place where they get so sick of the smell of trash that they get so tired of picking it up that when they drive their car up, their filthy cars, and you know what, they think, um, man, I don't think I wanna let my trash fall out of my car again today. As a matter of fact, I might just clean up my car before it ever gets there. I think God deals with us in much the same way. I think there are times in his grace and in his mercy and in his love and in his power, when we ask him, he just comes in and he just cleans up the trash. Praise God he does it. 
But there are other times in his grace and in his mercy and in his power, he says, you know what? We're going to do it the slow way. I'm going to be there with you the whole time. But I'm going to get you to a place where you learn to hate it. And when he does that, he's producing in us a hatred for our sin that we might not have ever had beforehand. Think about it. When the prodigal son looked away in the faraway land, he's like, man, that place looks kind of cool. That looks good. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking I'm missing out by staying here with my father. I I think I'm going to go away and find life in the faraway land. Has it ever dawned on you that the father let him go? The father let him go. The kid went to the faraway land, lost his mind, sinning like a bed dog. The father could have come and found him at any point in time, but he didn't. He let him go all the way to the pig pen. But what happened? Kid woke up one day. He's in the pig pen. He's like, man, this stinks. This stinks. I'm going home. And he went home, and the father was there wrapped his arms around him or forgive them. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that from then on, when that young man, as he was doing the work with his father every day and he looked out and saw the faraway land, the temptation was gone. Every time he thought about it, he just wanted to throw up. And I promise you, he never went back there again. Say this and I'm done. We're gonna do the Lord's Prayer. Lord says... I want you to be holy because I'm holy. It's the calling on your life. Paul teaches us that holiness is the place you're going. It's the place you're heading. He who began the good work in you is gonna be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And so one of the primary characteristics of a child of God is not that you never sin, but one of the primary characteristics of a child of God is that you hate your sin. You hate it. And you're constantly fighting and striving against that sin. And Jesus is reminding us today that in your battle, in your fight against sin, make sure you are fighting it on your knees. That's where the power is. It's so simple, but we forget. And whether he comes in and heals you in that moment or whether he allows you to wrestle with it and he heals you in the day of Christ Jesus, the amazing truth is regardless of it, we are gonna be healed of our sin ultimately. And I thank God for that. It's gonna heal you now or heal you in the future. But I think that old hymn that we sing says it so best, says it so well. It's called, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and he who's plunged beneath that flood lose all his guilty stains. You're made holy, but then we keep sinning, and at the end, the verse that most people don't sing, but I love this verse. It says, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more, be saved, to sin no more, till all the ransomed church of God be saved, to sin no more. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the day when we go to heaven and we'll never sin again.